Brothers and sisters, we are be ready to begin our second class. Our speaker is Brother Roger Lewis. Theme for Brother Lewis's classes this week is, Who Was the Nameless Man of God? Today's class is entitled, Now There Dwelt an Old Prophet. Brother Roger. Well, thank you, Brother Chairman, and good morning, my dear brothers and sisters. So our next study then, this morning, is, uh, as entitled here, Who Was the Nameless Man of God? focuses on the very next part of the narrative of the first of Kings chapter 13, uh, under this particular title of, Now There Dwelt an Old Prophet. And of course, we come across that uh, in that record in the first of Kings chapter 13 and verse 11. We, we remember uh, finishing our study yesterday with the notion that the man of God had refused the reward and the refreshment of King Jeroboam, and he had done so with courage and conviction. He said, I may not, I will not eat with thee in this place or in thine house. It was charged me that I ought not to do so. And now in the first of Kings chapter 13 and verse 11, the record says, now there dwelt an old prophet in Bethel, and his sons came and told him. Do you know, if you come back to the first of Samuel in chapter 7, we're told that a long time earlier there was the probable beginning of the schools of the prophets, one of which was, was based in Bethel, we believe. In the first of Samuel chapter 7 and verses 15 and 16, the record says there that Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went from year to year in circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah and judged Israel in all those places, and his return was to Ramah, for there was his house and there he judged Israel. And although it says on this occasion that, um, that Samuel acted as a judge, and so he did, actually he becomes famous as being the, really the beginning of the prophetic order. He's known as Samuel the prophet, all the prophets from Samuel, and those that follow after, says Acts chapter 3. And part of that work that established the, 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 the rule of prophets in the land was that Samuel established schools of the prophets, we believe, in each of these places, one of which, says verse 16, was Bethel. Now, the first of Samuel chapter 7 is about 150 years before Jeroboam. So I think there's been something of a prophetic order in this particular city for a long, long time before Jeroboam comes to it. But if you come to the second of Kings and chapter 2, you'll also remember in the matter concerning the departure of Elijah, we're told in the first of Kings, uh, second of Kings rather, and chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, the record says, Elijah said unto Elisha, Tarry here, I pray thee, for Yahweh hath sent me to Bethel. And Elisha said unto him, As Yahweh liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets that were at Bethel came forth to Elijah and said unto him, Knowest thou that Yahweh will take away thy master from thy head today? And he said, Yea, I know it. Hold your peace. So now we've got a reference to the sons of the prophets in Bethel 
And this is now about 80 years after Jeroboam. Again, 150 years before is still in existence 80 years after. I believe that the prophetic order was there right through that whole period. It might have waxed and waned, brothers and sisters, but they were there. So, so when we come back to the first of Kings and chapter 13 and verse 11, I think that the suggestion perhaps of the record is that when it describes this man as an old prophet who dwelt in Bethel, that presumably this man once stood related to the study of the word and to the spirit of the truth. He'd once been there. But things have changed now. In fact, I think the appearance of the man of God, as I suggested in our word of exhortation, was perhaps the very sign that the Levites took that it was time to go. That his denunciation of Jeroboam's altar said to the Levites, once and for all, if they weren't certain, you must go south to God's true altar. It's time to leave. And the Levites had, and other faithful people had. But this man, this old prophet hadn't. He was still there. It's his settled place of residence. He's in Bethel, where Jeroboam's apostate religion is based. Now, there are different views on the character of this old prophet in the first of Kings chapter 13. Some see in him a corrupt and an evil man, one who was in league with Jeroboam, one who was fully supportive of the king's apostasy, of the king's idolatry, a man who sought, in fact, to deceive and to compromise the man of God, and did so deliberately that he might destroy his integrity and defeat his message. And there are some people that believe that that's the role that the old prophet plays in this story. But I think that when we read the narrative as a whole, that the divine record is consistent in portraying him in a good light with the exception of the matter of his lie, which, of course, we'll come to later in the story. But apart from that, I think that this man of God, this prophet, rather, the old prophet of Bethel, is presented to us, in fact, in a positive light. And I think as our studies unfold, we will become more and more convinced about that. But what we can say about him is that he's a man whose faith has declined. He's a man whose witness has diminished. This could go on for some time, I'm imagining. There's something comforting about the fact that they do that. For those that are crossing. And for the man who can do that, there's something enjoyable. It's almost like me at home with my hammer, you know. There's something pleasurable about the thought of the whole exercise. Yes. That, that's quite true. I think it's very wise that they do. I, on the other hand, don't have to do anything with my hammer. And so I'm not in the same position at all. So I think what we can decide, brothers and sisters, is that this old prophet is certainly a man whose faith has declined and whose witness has diminished. In fact, it's pretty clear, isn't it, that he obviously didn't speak out against Jeroboam's new religious system, because if, if he'd stood up and denounced it, maybe the man of God would never have had to come in the first place. But it doesn't sound or look as if the old prophet has. And his sons are there at the celebration of Jeroboam's inaugural ceremony, although I don't know that we can conclude that they were there as confirmed idolaters. 
I think perhaps they were there as distressed observers. We know they were there because 1 Kings 11 verse, uh, verse uh, sorry, chapter 13 verse 11 says that his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel and the words that he'd spoken unto the king. So the sons came and they told their father all his works and all his words. His works related to the rending of the altar and the mending of the hand. And his words related to the condemnation of Jeroboam's rival system and the certainty of its overthrow which he declared. So these sons came home on this day with a very dramatic story of the day's events. And the surprising thing, brothers and sisters, is that it obviously affected their father much more powerfully than they could ever have imagined when they came home with that story that day. There's an old Latin proverb, qui tacet consentit, which means simply this, Silence gives consent. And it's true, isn't it, in lots of things, that people interpret lack of response as tacit approval. And that's why silence can sometimes be complicity. Things are done, things are said, things are inaugurated that are wrong, clearly wrong, but the worst sin is that no one says anything against it or about it. So why had the old prophet, you think, ceased to cry aloud against this prevailing sin of the time? Why had he ceased to testify in the matters of the truth? Well, I think so he had done, I think he had done so at least in measure, brothers and sisters, because of what the scripture says about growing old. If you come to the second of Samuel, chapter 19, you might remember this occasion when an old man comes before David and he actually turns David's invitation down because of the very fact that he had reached a certain age and with it a diminishing of his powers. The second of Samuel chapter 19 says in verse 34, Barzillai I said unto the king, How long have I to live that I should go up with the king unto Jerusalem? I am this day fourscore years old, and can I discern between good and evil? Can thy servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Can I hear any more the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should thy servant be yet a burden unto my Lord the King? He got to the stage, brothers and sisters, where not only could he not taste what he ate and drank, but the matter of discerning between good and evil becomes more difficult with the passage of time and the complexity of life. There's another one like that in Ecclesiastes, isn't there? Do you remember that famous passage in Ecclesiastes in chapter 12? Come and have a look at it, because I think this is relevant, you see, to the, to the story of the old prophet. Because in the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12, it says this concerning that same diminishment of powers in oldness of age. It starts right at the start of the chapter, really, but if we just pick up the record from Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 5, it says... Also they shall be afraid of that which is high, and fears shall be in the way. The almond tree shall blossom, flourish, the whiteness of the almond upon the head of the hair, 
The grasshopper shall be a burden, no spring in the step anymore. Desire shall fail, because man goeth to his long home, and the mourners go about the streets. Everything's beginning to shut down, to close down. Or ever the silver cord be loosed, or the golden bowl be broken, or the pitcher be broken at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. And the idea of verse 6, brothers and sisters, is that the spinal cord and the brain and the heart finally give out in oldness of age. And men and women go to their long home. And I think that the old prophet, you see, had ceased to witness because it comes with an acknowledgement that the spirit of change is as relentless as the advancing tide which cannot be contained. People cease to witness because there is an admission of weariness of age that's made the strain of faithful witness too difficult to sustain any longer. It comes because of an awareness that strength of mind and vigor of heart that are needed to meet the challenge are no longer there. It comes, this lack of witness, because of a realization that the next generation neither sees the issue nor wishes to defend it, and therefore perhaps the battle's lost already. Oh, yes, there could be very good reasons why an old prophet would cease to witness, don't you think? At least he hadn't gone to the ceremony. He stayed at home. His witness lay in abstaining. So, so come back to Kings, the first of Kings, chapter 13. And let's take up the record now as the sons come back to speak to this old man with this remarkable message of the events of the day. They came and told him all that the man of God had done, verse 11, you see. And now the record says, his father, their father, verse 12, said to them, what way went he? Because you see, this report of his sons about what the man of God had said and what the man of God had done had so intrigued and inspired him that he wanted to know more. He was stirred by the story of the courage of the man of God. And what it did, I believe, is it fanned the flickering flame in the old prophet's heart. And so he asked his sons, which way did he go? Because, says the verse, his sons had seen what way the man of God went, which came from Judah. The very public nature of his appearance and his declaration. Some, including these sons, had watched carefully to see, in fact, upon which road the man of God had exited. And so verse 13 says that he said unto his sons, Saddle me the ass. So they saddled him the ass, and he rode thereon. So why did he ride upon an ass, brothers and sisters? Why did the old prophet ride upon an ass? Well, I think there's two possibilities. The first of them is in the second of Samuel chapter 19 and verse 26, and it concerns the matter or the story of Mephibosheth. Now, do you remember how in the second of Samuel chapter 19, we're told this in the 25th verse. It says that when he was come to Jerusalem, the king said unto him, David said unto him, Wherefore wentest thou not with me, Mephibosheth? And Mephibosheth says in the second of Samuel 19 and verse 26, he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me, for thy servant said, I will saddle me an ass, that I may ride thereon and go to the king, because thy servant is lame. Ah, so that's one reason why the old prophet could have ridden an ass, because he was infirm physically, like Mephibosheth, and therefore needed to ride upon the beast of burden. 
he was incapable of walking. That's one possibility. But there's another possibility in the second of Kings chapter 4 and verse 24. And the second of Kings chapter 4 verse 24 is the story of the great woman of Shunem and of the catastrophe of that day when her son died. And in crisis, in desperation, she decides that she will go to Elisha. And this is what it says in 2 Kings 4 verse 24. It says, Then she saddled an ass and said to her servant, Drive and go forward and slap not thy riding for me except I bid thee. So she rode, not because she was infirm, but because she was desperate to get there quickly. So which of those two do you think it might have been for the old prophet in the first of Kings 13 when he said to his son, saddle me an ass? Was it because he was infirm or was it because he wanted to make haste? Well, I think as the narrative unfolds that we will find it was the latter. He was anxious to make haste. I don't think he was infirm. I think the record will tell us that later on. He most certainly wasn't incapable of walking. But he needed to get there quickly. Why? Well, because the man of God might soon be gone. He knew that he'd already left. His sons have come back and made the report after the man of God's already departed. And by the time the story's over, the old prophet says, if I don't get on this ass quickly, I'll miss him altogether. So he rides because of the need of speed. And why that's interesting, brothers and sisters, is I think it's an insight into the purpose for which the old prophet rode. He wanted to meet the man of God. He wanted to have conversation with him before the chance was lost. And I don't think he wanted that conversation to compromise him. I think he wanted to talk to someone who might stir him up in spiritual things. So verse 14 says, He went after the man of God. He found him sitting under an oak, and he said unto him, Art thou the man of God that camest from Judah? You know, there were several such trees that marked out certain places in the land of Israel. Genesis chapter 13 and verse 18 tells us about the oak of Hebron. Genesis chapter 35 and verse 4 tells us about the oak of Shechem. Judges chapter 6 verse 11 tells us about the oak of Ophrah. And there's a passage in Genesis chapter 35 and verse 8 that tells us that there was an oak at Bethel. Because under that oak it says that Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and she was buried beneath Bethel under an oak, the name of which was called Alon Bakuth, the oak of weeping. There was an oak tree there. Now I'm not sure, brothers and sisters, that the oak tree of Bethel in the first of Kings 13 is the same oak tree that goes all the way back to the time of Jacob. Whether it was or whether it wasn't, it was clearly a landmark tree that was very well known. And the reason why we know that is because verse 14 in the Hebrew doesn't say that he found them sitting under an oak tree. The Hebrew says he found them sitting under the oak tree. Oh yes, it was well known, this tree. The oak of Bethel. You see, it was a place of shade. It was a place of repose. It was a place of gathering. It was a place of public conversation. And for all of those reasons, 
It was not a place suitable for a man of God who was supposed to be seeking to make a quiet and private and unobtrusive exit. So what's he doing sitting under the Oak of Bethel in a totally public place for a man of God who was supposed to leave secretly? Why is he still sitting under the oak near Bethel? Was he faint because he'd not eaten? Was he reluctant to return to Judah? Was he disappointed at the anticlimax of removal to obscurity? Was he resting on his way home prematurely? Well, whatever his motive was, brothers and sisters, it seems certain, at least this, that he had not expedited his return to Judah with all speed. And so when the old prophet comes bursting upon the scene, riding his ass as quickly as he can, he finds to a surprise, well, I think that's the very man, because when he says, art thou the man, I think perhaps he looked like a traveler, and the sons had probably described him to their father. Well, he was wearing this, he looked like this. And so he says, well, are you the one? Of course, he needed to know for sure, because he's going to invite this person home. So he certainly needed to identify him. So he comes upon him perhaps quicker than he thought. He needed to ask him who he was, so that he can invite him home and make sure he had the right person. He wanted to engage in conversation. And no doubt he was pleased and delighted that he'd caught up with the man of God in time. And so he says, verse 15, having discovered him, he said unto him, well, if you be he, then come home with me and eat bread. Now, I think, by the way, that that was a totally genuine invitation. I think that's precisely what the old prophet wanted. Nothing more, nothing less. Come home with me and eat bread. But it was everything that eat bread implied. It was conversation as well as food. This was a moment that they might share together in the things of the truth. Ah, but you see, there was, you see what he says? Come home with me. But those are the very words that the king had uttered back in verse 7. Do you notice that? The king said unto the man of God, come home with me. Same phrase, you see. And on that occasion, the man of God had unequivocally refused that invitation to come home with someone. But you see, it was different, wasn't it, verse 15? Because, well, the man of God could argue that now this invitation had come from someone who could claim the status of a prophet and with a message from God. But the reality was, it still represented the offer of fellowship with Bethel. And I think the old prophet, by the way, hadn't considered the implication of his own request. All he wanted was, come home and have a meal with me. But he didn't realize that what he was actually asking the man of God to do was to deny his commission from God. He was asking him to break what God had charged him to do. Now, do you think the old prophet did that on purpose, to undermine the credibility of the man of God? Or do you think he did it out of a genuine desire to be nourished in spiritual things? And I think the very nature of his ride and his subsequent behavior will tell us all that his, his, his intentions were honorable and his purpose was genuine. But the reality was, brothers and sisters, it was still wrong, wasn't it? It was something that he ought not to have done. And one of the lessons, perhaps, of this story is how wrong behavior on the part of one person can suddenly lead to a wrong response on the part of another, and suddenly there's a cascade of wrong behavior, all triggered by someone in the first instance who did something wrong that they ought not to have done. 
And so the man of God, and rightly so, says in verse 16, I may not return with thee, nor go in with thee, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with thee in this place. You see that key phrase? I may not return with thee, nor go in with thee, nor eat bread nor drink water with thee. You see, it was all a question of fellowship, all about the matter of fellowship. He says, I can't do that, he says. In fact, he says, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with thee in this place. Now, do you notice how significant that phrase, this place, must be, in effect, in verse 16? Because when he says this place, what does he mean? Well, of course, he means Bethel, doesn't he? But you wouldn't say this place, meaning Bethel, unless you're still right next door to Bethel, to call it this place. Man of God hasn't gone very far at all, has he? on his apparent journey homewards. You see, there's inconsistencies in this man's attitude and conduct. Now, here's a couple of New Testament references that, that illustrate the principle that the man of God had really failed to understand and to hold by. It, it, the first of those is in the second of Corinthians in chapter 6. Two New Testament passages about the clarity of thought needed with regard to what we fellowship and what we don't fellowship. 2nd of Corinthians chapter 6 puts it this way, when it says in verse 14 these words. 2nd Corinthians 6.14 says, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. There ought to be no fellowship between righteousness and unrighteousness. And this man of God had been sent on a mission to declare that very principle in the face of the king. And yet now he seems to be unclear about the dimensions of the charge given to him. And now Ephesians chapter 5, and reading from verses 6 to 11. And Ephesians 5 says something very similar and it captures the same spirit of determination and decisiveness. Ephesians 5 verse 6 says, Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them, for ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord, walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. You see, part of the wisdom of the truth, brothers and sisters, is to learn what things we need to stand apart from. And remember that this imperative for him not to associate, back in the first of Kings chapter 13, this wasn't of the man of God's own direction. This is laid upon him by Almighty God himself. I think there's a problem here, brothers and sister, sisters, in the life of the, 
of the man of God, and I think the problem is this. It's about the matter of procrastination. You see, the man of God procrastinated in expediting his return to Judah, and he lost his life in the circumstances which followed his return to that place. And it's all because he didn't get away quickly enough, not so much on his feet, but in his mind. He held back, didn't he? He really must have, because he's sitting under that oak tree, not too far away from Bethel at all. The old prophet almost comes upon him before he's got on the, on the ass. He procrastinated. We're told in Genesis chapter 19 and verse 26 that Lot's wife procrastinated in her flight from Sodom. She lost her life in the catastrophe which overthrew that place. You'll remember what the record says. The record says in the Genesis version, of course, and rather vividly so, that she became a pillar of salt. But when the Lord takes up the teaching, the implication of the story of Lot's wife, he says this in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 18, verse 31. He says, In that day he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. Do not loiter, do not delay, do not procrastinate, says the Lord. And then he says, Remember Lot's wife. That's what she did. And she lost her life because of that. In the second of Samuel chapter 20 and verse 5, we're told that Amasa, who'd been appointed as captain of the host, was sent off by David to assemble the army within a specified time period, but he procrastinated to get them all together. In fact, he went beyond the appointed time. And David, in his frustration at the urgency of the matter, made other arrangements. And because of that change of plan, Joab took opportunity to slay Amasa. He lost his life partly because he delayed to do something he'd been asked to do. Whatever the reasons behind what happened, there was procrastination here. And in Jeremiah chapter 38 and verses 16 to 21, we're told that the prophet Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, you ought to go out and surrender to the king of the Babylonians, and if you do, you will be safe, and you will be well, and your family will be looked after, and all will be well if you surrender to the reality that the king of Babylon's coming is God-ordained. And the king said, oh, I'm not sure, I can't, I can't decide, and so he procrastinated. And because he procrastinated, he lost his kingdom, he lost his family, he lost his eyes. You see, procrastination affects all of us at times, doesn't it, brothers and sisters? But when it comes to matters of divine principle, we ought never to procrastinate. The longer we wait to live out a principle, probably the harder it will become. And I think this was a problem in the life of the man of God. And, and so the man of God says this in the first of Kings 13 and verse 17. He says, I can't return with thee, verse 16, because, verse 17, it was said to me by the word of the Lord that thou shalt, not eat, thou shalt eat no bread nor drink water there, nor turn again by the way that thou camest. Now it sounds as if he's restating what he's been told earlier in the chapter. And it, and it is almost exactly the same. 
when it says, Thou shalt eat no bread nor drink water there, nor turn again to go by the way thou camest, those words come out of verse 9. Eat no bread nor drink water, nor turn again by the way that thou camest. It's almost as if he quotes it word for word, apart from one little subtle change. And you wonder, well, we can't be sure, brothers and sisters, but he leaves one word out, you see, from verse 9, which he no longer quotes in verse 17. And the word he leaves out is, it was charged me by Yahweh. But now in verse 17, he simply says, it was said to me. Now we can't be sure, but I wonder whether we read into that a weakening of his stand already. It's no longer a charge. Just what God said. See, that's what procrastination does, isn't it? You see, suddenly the clarity of the demand and the decisiveness of the issue is weakened, precisely because we've delayed. Well, well, the old prophet had an answer, you see, because he says in verse 18, it says, he said unto him, well, he said, I'm a prophet also as thou art. Actually, Rodham says, I also am a prophet like unto thee, meaning I'm a prophet of Yahweh. And he said, An angel spake unto me by the word of Yahweh, saying, Bring him back with thee into thine house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied unto him. An angel spake unto me, says the old prophet, by the word of Yahweh, saying, Bring this man back into thine house. But you see, the man of God had received his commission directly by the word of Yahweh in verse 1. It came directly from God to him. And now this is a suggestion that that be turned aside from, but it hasn't come directly from God. It's come from another man who claims that he's had a mission or a message from God via an angel. But there wasn't really any proper basis to deviate from the charge that had been put upon him, and certainly not simply by accepting the words of another person. Now, a couple of other passages that come to mind at this particular moment. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, there's an excellent section at the very start of the chapter, Deuteronomy 13 verses 1 to 5, that I think, again, is pertinent to the spirit of this interchange between the old prophet and the man of God. I cannot go with thee by the way thou camest. And he said, I am a prophet as thou art. An angel spake to me, saying, Do this, and it will be all right. Now, do you see what Deuteronomy 13 says, verse 1? If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and giveth thee a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder come to pass, whereof he spake unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For Yahweh your God proveth you to know whether ye love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Ye shall walk after Yahweh your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice and ye shall serve Him and cleave unto Him. And that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he hath spoken to turn you away from Yahweh your God which brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of bondage to thrust thee out of the way which Yahweh thy God commanded thee to walk in. Now isn't that exactly what's happening in the first of Kings? This man with other thoughts and other suggestions is there to try and thrust you out of the way which God commanded you to walk in. Well, that's how the man of God starts. He says, I I may not go back by the way thou camest. But you see, he hadn't understood the fullness of that 
passage in Deuteronomy. And here's another one in Galatians. If you come to Galatians chapter 1, and you remember the memorable words of the apostle when he, he exhibited such astonishment that the Galatians had so soon been moved away from the truth of the gospel. And he puts it this way in Galatians chapter 1 and verses 6 to 10. He says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you that would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? If I seek to please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Well, that's the challenge, isn't it, back in the first of Kings chapter 13. That's the very challenge that the man of God faces on this occasion, brothers and sisters, because the old prophet has suggested that he has angelic evidence, but actually none of that was a good enough reason for the man of God to change what he should have done. You see what verse 18 says in the first of Kings 13? An angel spake unto me, saying, Bring him back with thee into thine house. Perhaps that was the emphasis, you see. An angel said, Come back to my house. And the implication being that to eat with this old man, an old prophet, was not at all the same thing as sitting down to eat with Jeroboam. It was all about the question of which house, you see. Well, no, 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 not the king's house. I understand why you couldn't eat there. No, no, come to my house. That's a different house. We can eat and be in fellowship. But he lied unto him. So why did the old prophet lie, do you think, in this chapter? Well, again, there seems to be only two main alternatives. The first is that he was trying to corrupt the man of God and subvert his testimony, or that he was trying to gain time for conversation, but was oblivious to the moral implications of his lie. I think we've got to be careful with the first of Kings 13, brothers and sisters, because what I think we do is we read the final result, which is that the man of God's going to die, and then we're shocked at the lie, you see, which is true. But I think it's also true to say that the old prophet had no idea at this moment in verse 18, no idea what a terrible outcome his lie would bring upon the man of God. It was just a little lie come home and have a meal with me. He didn't realize how the implications would. He could never have imagined, brothers and sisters, could he, what a calamitous outcome would come to pass because of what he said on this occasion. Never thought that that would be possible. He just short sought spiritual conversation. He wanted the keen edge of iron sharpening iron, and he couldn't get it in Bethel anymore in the city of the calves. And it wasn't too hard, was it, to rationalize his words by the thought that he was engaging in an act of hospitality, and that perhaps good could come of their conversation together. The human mind is capable of all such subtle considerations. And so this is how verse 18 finishes and how verse 19 starts, and I'm reading it with regard to the emphasis that I think perhaps is there. Bring him back with thee into thine house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied unto him. So he went back with him. He went back with him, just like that. 
it's almost as if the man of God was just waiting for a justification to go back. Was he wanting some form of recognition? And in going back, he broke God's command not to travel on the same road, verse 9. And in going back and eating bread, he broke command, God's command not to fellowship in food and drink, verse 9. Now, I think there's a lesson here, brothers and sisters. There's a lesson in this story from the man of God, and the lesson is this. I want you to see if you can see a common element in all of these Bible passages. It's about the entanglement of sin. But there's a key idea here that's common to these stories. You see, the man of God went back, I think, because he wanted to. And the opportunity arose through an invitation which he couldn't resist. In Joshua chapter 7 and verses 20 to 21, we're told that Achan noticed a Babylonish garment and silver and gold, but it wasn't just that, it was the fact that in the midst of battle, there was a moment alone when he was all by himself, he could gather stuff up and wrap it in a robe, and, and he took the opportunity to take the spoil and take it home and hide it in his tent. In the second of Samuel chapter 11 and verse 5, David tarried at Jerusalem while his army was out fighting. And he walks upon his rooftop and he sees Bathsheba washing herself. And one of his valiant warriors was Uriah the Hittite, who's away at the time. And precisely because he was the king and could do as the king pleased, he yielded to an opportunity which his very kingship enabled. And John chapter 12 verse 6 says that Judas was the treasurer for the Lord's band. And because he bore the bag, he had opportunity to steal the contributions, which is precisely what John says. It says he bare the bag, or he had the bag, and bear what was carried therein. But another translation says he used to help himself to the contributions, and that's the meaning of the Greek. He stole precisely because he had the bag under his control and had opportunity to do so. See the key idea, brothers and sisters? Here's the lesson. Sin comes when weakness meets opportunity. Sometimes we see others sin and we're shocked that they have fallen. And that could be partly because that particular weakness is not a weakness that we have and so we in the same circumstance would never have done that because it wasn't our weakness. Or it could be that we have precisely the same weakness but we've never been given the same opportunity that they had to fall. But the lesson is that we need to become aware of our weaknesses and make sure that we never permit opportunity to arise because when weakness and opportunity meet, sin will be the result. And that's what happened in the life of the man of God on this occasion when the record says 
in verse 19, that he went back with him and did eat bread in his house. Perhaps he thought that to eat with the old prophet was acceptable. And given his invitation that had an angelic support, and that the old man was clearly not a supporter of Jeroboam. But you see, that's what we all do, brothers and sisters. We take a clear principle of Scripture, and then we start to rationalize to ourselves why perhaps on this occasion it might not be necessary. In fact, on this occasion it might not even be wise to do what the Bible says. But the reality was that he had never had a rescinding of the charge by direct instruction from the Word of God to him which was how he'd received it in the first place. Oh yes, it was a mistake for the man of God to go back. But how serious was it? What harm could there be in a meal with a like-minded man? And if he just ate and then left, what negative consequences could there be? Well, that, brothers and sisters, is the subject of our next study.